You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Chuvas and Poiskim. We enter Sefer Shmois, and we can't help but draw parallels between what we see as the Bnei Yisrael's Hishtabdus, the way that they were enslaved and dehumanized um, to other situations in our history. And it's obviously the psukim are very sparse, but as every generation has read these psukim, they have seen a reflection of what was occurring around them. Obviously, we left we left Mitzrayim, but we know that we did not leave uh, 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 the idea of Shibara Umais. In fact, there's uh, there's some theories that say that had Klal Yisrael stayed the requisite amount of time, there wouldn't have been any more Chorbonas, any more um, uh, need to be persecuted and to be tested. There would have been perhaps the the, the mess, Messianic age would have uh, would have begun. We do have such statements, but the point really is, is that there is a sense of past repeating itself in many ways, uh, and, and people will look to Sheba Mitzrayim. And it's not only Klal Yisrael who has looked to Sheba Mitzrayim and the Geula, uh, many other uh, factions who have adopted and loved the Torah, loved the Bible, have seen themselves as also the enslaved ones, the ones that would be freed, um, whether it was the African-Americans uh, in, in the 19th century, or perhaps even the pilgrims and others who came, they saw themselves as as the new Israelites uh, and who had facing persecution. Paro, Mitzrayim, it's, it's, it's always been a very fascinating uh, place to go to. So I, I want to really connect something which I think is is in the pshat to something that uh, is perhaps even relevant today. I, I, I think it I think it still is because I think it, it underscores who what our responsibility is to our lives, our children. So let's take a look. We'll start here with the with the psukim. Of course that. I don't even know their names, but we do know what the wife does. We do know what the woman does. She hides him. She hides him for three months. Now, she hides him for three months because the Psukim told us earlier that there was Xera that the children would, would be thrown into the Yor, drowned and killed. Now, there's a whole discussion about what that Xerah was, how you know, the Ramban has an interesting understanding of that Xerah. He says that the, the Jews themselves had to throw their children and they were forced to take their male children and throw them in and, 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 and drown them. Um, but whether it was the Bnei Yisrael forced to do it or whether it was these Gestapo-like characters who were coming in and discovering we definitely have a sense here of of, of Yochevet's fear and her recognition, although the baby is definitely Tov, the baby will live, despite, according to some traditions, that uh, that 
we have a Kabbalah from Chazal, not just some traditions, I should say, that uh, Moshe was a premature child, but he was definitely going to live. There was something special about him. And therefore she hid him because she was not going to let him die. Then as the next passage says, that when she realized she couldn't hide him anymore, and again, the Raubag and others say because um, he just got too, he was he was so healthy and she he would cry. Again, it's hard of us looking at Moshe Rabbeinu and seeing a three-month-old child who was crying, yes, but he was an infant. Um, and therefore, um, his his life and existence were known, and hiding him wasn't another option. So what does she do? So she lovingly creates a, a place for him, this Tevas Goma. What was she doing? What was the purpose of Yochevet's placing her child? She couldn't hide him. Seemingly there, again, there would have been discovery and death. Putting the child into the Nile, into the river, into the reeds by the river. Um, Umberta Kasuto already points out that the word Vatosem, as you can see here on the screen, and the other Vatosem, is a repetition. It's the same verb again, the same lovingness that she puts the child in. She puts the container, the box, the, the teva, into the svas hayor. Um, now, of course, there's the only other time we find the word teva um, is, of course, by the novel which saves humanity. And here, once again, humanity and the Jewish people, and by extension, the rest of humanity, I guess, are going to be saved by this child in the Teva, by this being in the Teva, by this life in the Teva. Well, that's us looking at it. But what did, what did Yochebet think? When Yochebet did this, what was her purpose? Um, now, the next passage sort of indicates that maybe her purpose was, because by the fact that Yochebet's sister... The fact that Yochebed's sister was standing, uh, Yochebed's daughter, uh, the child's uh, sister, was standing Merochok, standing far enough, Ledea Mayeoselo. So it doesn't seem like what we're talking about is the idea of, you know, let him just, I don't want to see him die. We do have such a, an approach by Hogar, right? Hogar doesn't want to see the child, Hogar takes uh, the young Yishmol and stays away from him and doesn't want to have to be with the child when he dies. That doesn't seem to be what was going on here from this Pesach. It sounds like they wanted something to happen. And and perhaps they could still be uh, influenced about what would happen. Now, was this... Now, we know who this sister is. We know it's Miriam. Was this Miriam's own initiative? Was it was it a byproduct of what Yocheved wanted? Did Yocheved just put the child as lovingly as possible, but feel that the child would just starve? I mean, there's no food. The child has no food in the teva. Might be a nice little comfortable place, but... Now, so, um, obviously we know the child was saved. 
and we know the child was rescued. Um, as you can see from the very next Pasik. But what was what was what was behind Yochebed's idea? So you might have noticed in the email that uh, I, I sent you from Rabavadya Safarna that she thought that he would be adopted. Safarno says that um, now again it's a little bit uh, you, know, you would wonder you know, if the baby's in the water, why would you say that the uh, and we know that the, it's, it's the, which is actually the assumption that that the um, the Pasparo comes to. She discovers the baby in the water, and I guess when she looks at him, right, um, she doesn't. And again, but she understood that it wasn't right, as she says. But but Tomar Ibrim said, "Oh, he's he's that's a Jewish child." So that's a pretty. You know, a logical conclusion to come to by Basparo, but the Sferno says that that the idea behind what um, what Yochebed wanted, what Yochebed wanted, according to that, was as you can see, Shechoshva Shikicheu Mitzri. She thought that a Mitzri would find her. That a Mitzri would find him, Kishara Sufi. And the Mitzri would just take the child, just like any child that had been abandoned. A Sufi is a child that you gather up from the street because the mother is embarrassed that the, that she has this child. It's out of wedlock child. There's an, it's a child that's a bodic of incest. And here at the Sferno and this is particularly this Ferno's way of looking at at things. We know that Mitzrayim was full of these type of children, children that were abandoned. Now, the Sferno had a very negative sense about what the, uh, not just a sense, he continuously talks about how the Mitzri environment um, changed the inherent purity and, and goodness of the Jewish people. On the Pesach by Yishritzu, in the very beginning of the Parsha, Sferno talks about the idea of the comparison between um, humanity and Shrotzim. And and even though there might be a level of sophistication, he felt that it was a very corrupt, sybaritic, hedonistic society, and it had influenced the Jewish people. And Sferno continues that type of statement. And of course, we have a basis from it, from the Pesach that says in Parsha's um, it talks about Kamaisa Eretz Mitzrayim, uh, before it introduces all the acts of incest and illegal, um, sexual behavior. It says, don't act like the people in Mitzrayim did. Um, Kamaisa Eretz Mitzrayim. So there's definitely the Torah, and not just, you know, the Mephorshim say that this was a land of licentiousness. But the Sorano says, and therefore, with licentiousness, there was probably a lot of kids, you know, because they didn't have the pill. There was probably a lot of kids. Because it's full of, 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 of this type of behavior. And therefore, there was probably a lot of them. And this was probably a well-known phenomenon. And therefore, despite the fact that there was there was Jewish children that, that I guess were being thrown in the water, she thought that a non-Jew, a Mitzri would find her child. And what would the Mitzri do? Well, the Mitzri would raise the child. 
That's what it seems, right? <laughs> you know, she is a mitzri. So basically, based on this forno, and I, I found a similar idea here in um, in the uh, from Rabbi Yaakov C. Mecklenburg in his classic Ksav Um He also says that um, she felt Kibiosa Bebesa Yomus Vadai. Here he's going to be discovered. Here it's certain death. But I have the possibility for him to live. Because maybe he'll find Ishchonein Viachmalov. Now of course now this interpretation, which is I'm not sure where this is from, this is this is again the idea that maybe the person will there'll be a good mitzri out there. Not necessarily believe that the child is a non ivri, but maybe there's someone out there who doesn't isn't part of that negative anti-zeitgeist that, zeitgeist that was anti and seeing us as as the evil parasites that needed to be pushed down and agreed, acquiesced to this the murders that were continuing. Maybe there's an Ishchonein, maybe there's a good person out there, and that good person would, would somehow allow this child to live. Now, this ask this interpretation of what perhaps what any mother would do is to let her child live. Um, it's not agreed upon by men and by by a lot of the mafarshim. Um, there are midrashim and and other takes that say that maybe she wanted to just hide him for a while and go back. You know, there's an interesting but from the Rebelezer Rofe Ashkenazi says maybe what Yocheved wanted was to find a place for him in the suf where he would not be seen by the passers-by. She wasn't thinking about the people swimming, like Basparo, who would see him. But not that she, she was giving him up. She, she was getting him comfortable, and then she just was taking him away from her tent or from whatever sort of sorted living at, uh, you know, quarters she had in Mitzrayim, where his cries would be heard, and she'd be able to go to the Suf for a little while till she maybe thought of something else. To be able to uh, to be able to feed him and take care of him that is a that is an approach and I thought I found it interesting. Um, another possibility uh, is suggested by the great uh, Bible scholar uh, Umberto Casuto, who says that it was just a typical uh, idea that you know um, I don't want to be here where this when this occurs. When you know the 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 the, the jackboots of the authorities trample in and take this child, at least this way it's with God, and you know God will put it in God's hands. And other mafarshim actually earlier than Kasuto say a similar thing that she was sort of um, Mendelssohn actually Moses Mendelssohn writes that she was you know thinking miraculously. She was thinking, okay, look. Maybe if I get, you know, I think there's something special about this child. Maybe some miracle within the hands of, uh, in Teva, so to speak, in nature will occur, which of course did happen. But I think that if we go to the, to the Pshat of the Sforno and, and, and what the Ksavakabola brings, um, it really brings to the table the, the, the question of raising, you know, giving up your child, but the child lives. 
the child will be raised completely different, not with your worldview, not with the traditions of the family, not with, you know, let's put it in, 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 you know, in our terms, you know, you would raise a child and the child would be raised as a Christian. The child would be raised as a non-Jew. The child would live. Is that an option? Is that something that we would consider? Because let's say from our perspective, we believe living a life of Avodah Zarah. Now, let's, whether Christianity is Avodah Zarah or not, most of the Rishon have come down that it is. Yes, there's there's definitely some Rishonim and, and others that have said that it's that it's another way to serve God, and even though it has elements that hearken to Avodah Zarah, but let's argue for the sake let's let's for this discussion, let's say that it is Avodah Zarah. But at least the child is alive. Does the child? Well, we know we have you have to give up your life, not to do Avodah Zarah, but your child, and. That, I think, is a question that is worth exploring, and it has been explored. Um, and that's why I believe our Parsha can really take us back or forward into these type of questions. Do, now, we, do we know that that's a given, Rabbi, that the, the child will be doing it? I mean, potentially, right? Or is it just considered that it's so very common that it's, that it's you know, 99.9% probable that this child will end up participating in Avodah Zarah, and therefore, you know, yeah. therefore it's a given. I think the assumption that most of the of the Rishonim had who dealt with this question, and they talked about children that were kidnapped. They talked about children that were taken away and brought into the arms and control of the Christians in the Middle Ages. The assumption was that the child would not be able to resist the constant influence. And there was, you know, uh, I think, Mark, to answer your question, they thought it was pretty much a given, you know, unless the child was somehow, there was something super special, miraculous. But most people that are taken at a young age and are brought into a, a society, they're going to grow up and, and adopt like right, that right. society. Okay. So, right. So, so it's basically where you're working on the premise and it's logical that, yes. that it's pretty inevitable. Right. Right. And I think that's, that's what their assumption was. And the question is, is, but at least you've saved the life of that child. You know, the other option was death. Um, is, 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 is it possible that death is preferable? Now I have to tell you, you know, this is a big mountain of material really here really want to because it really gets to many many phases of our history there is uh there was a great debate that ensued but as as a result of what people were hearing in england like in the massacre of york and in france and in germany where what we would call the ashkenazi mindset was as as you know you know the Jews that were were holed up in again in the castle or whatever um, they were given some sort of refuge and on the outside of course there were these um, the hordes we call them the mob the hordes who were out there to to kill the Jews and take their children and there is a, a testimony from Rishonim at the time 
that there was a great Rav who, as the, um, you know, the, the, the barbarians were at the gate, was slaughtering the children, was shechting the children. And um, it even got to a point that that became so well known that the Sephardim, in other words, uh, the Jews of Spain, would refer to these Rabbanim as the Shochte Yuladim, as the ones who allowed the slaughter of children. Um, and uh, and they were saying perhaps that, that was improper. So there was actually this, 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 this fault line about whether, what, what should we do? The, the, those Rishonim and those terrible, terrible circumstances felt we are going to not let our child children be taken. I'm doing a mitzvah because this way the child dies pure. The child's soul would never be sullied by becoming a Christian and doing a Vodazara and living that type of life. And we know, of course, again, the, the Rishonim in Spain were not so uh, felt that this was not necessarily the way to go. That to actually Bapoel take the child and, and, and slaughter the child, that was considered too much. Um, now, you know, they, they felt that to actually at this point do an act of murder in order that the child should not live um, like a Christian was wrong. And this was really a debate between the Rishonim. And you can, you can see it. I think it really speaks to what we were talking about. There's other statements uh, in the Rishonim that speak about being Machal Shabbos when they heard a girl was the Rashba, um, a very famous Chuvas Harashba, about a girl that was um, kidnapped. And you could see the Rashba was acting. He found out that his daughter has been taken. Now, I don't know how old his daughter was, but she was old enough, I guess, to be considered attractive by some sort of, as you can see here, by another Jew who had already gone over to Christianity. And the question was, now that you decided this, that you found that your daughter's been taken, can you be Machal Shabbos to save her? Because what would happen? You can see the Rashba's language here. Pen yavchiduha v'tishtamed. Maybe, out of fear, she would go over. Can you go chutz l'shvosha parsos if you are you allowed to travel? That's an Isra Daraisa, according to many, to travel that far. Um... We know if it's a question of life or death, you do. So it's interesting. Look at the Rashba, who was, you know, from Spain. And he says, and I know you're not going to like hearing this. I'm not saying it's a, it's a, it's, it's a bad cause, but you're not Machal Shabbos. It's not human life. 
you're saving her from a life of sin, but it's not necessarily uh, a question of life or death. Now it's 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 your avera to save her, and therefore he basically seems to be against it. Now, um, which is strange. Now here, Mark, you could say that look. The girl was already somewhat of a of a of a, of a of a she wasn't a little baby, and who says that he can really influence her? Yeah, yeah. There's maybe you know, and 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 here perhaps it's not a slam dunk that she's going to lose her all sense of being a Jewish person. But this is one of the places that people look at about hmm, you know, um, you know what happens when you send. A person away now. Obviously, again, this really brings up the the real. I guess what I what you already know. I'm going to get to, which of course is this question, which is really something that actually occurred about seventy um, years ago. It's almost more. It's almost going to be eighty years, right? Almost eighty years ago. It's going to be se- almost eighty years ago. So this is. Uh, from, of course, um, Rabbi Ephraim Oshri. Um, and this is from his uh, famous collection called Chubas Mimamakim. And you can see here, in Mutter Litein Yolede Yisrael Lugoi, Shiit Manem. Can we give the Jews to the Ov de Avodazar? You see, Akum? <laughs> he means, you know, he assumed that they were idol worshippers. Now, let's take a look and see. There were different ways of, give, of of saving children, and he's going to talk about them right now. And I think Mark and, and everyone here that there's a difference between the different ways of saving your child. First, let's get the background and really see how we talked about Yochevet. He says that the um, there was something called the Kinder Aktion that was going to happen in Kovna Ghetto. In 1944, and they heard about it, and they knew what they were going to do. They were just going to basically exterminate children, and unfortunately, they they did kill 1,200 children. Um, you know, they went out and just found 1,200 children and killed them, shot them. Um, so parents at that point realized what can we do the, the terror the, the terror had gripped them as, as it should have what can we do to save our child so he says one of the things was they were able to get on the black market um, citizen forged citizen papers and it said over there the name of the they could find some name of maybe it was a child from the non-Jews who had died but they still had the birth uh, certificates and they could put one of those in some sort of envelope, attach it to these small children, and then take the baby, they take the young children. Again, this would work especially uh, for a baby or a toddler, and take that child and bring it to the, to the orphanages or the churches. And this way, the whoever found the child based on what those forged papers 
would say, oh, this is not a Jewish child, this is a Tinak Shonochrim. And this way the child would be taken in and would be raised just like any of the other orphans. That was one option. Now, I don't know <laughs> about the rest of you, but it's it's eerie, isn't it? This Remember what the Sferno said about Yocheved? It's almost exa- using almost the exact same language of Asufim. It's, 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 it's fascinating, really, because that was really, you know, if that's what Yocheved wanted, that to be raised as a Mitzri, but at least he would be alive. There was another option, and that option was if you didn't, if you weren't able to get the, the papers, to go straight to the priests. Now this gets into a very, very, um, I guess, theologically difficult space. Many of the priests and and men of the cloth, men of the God, men who had, who had, who had dedicated their lives to Jesus. Um, were abhorred by what was going on and wanted to do what they could to save Jewish lives. But of course, they saw as a prerogative of theirs, in fact, of something they should do, is to take these children and raise them in a way that they would be saved in their mind, which would be to raise them as, as, as Catholics. Um, or, right, and that's what one of the options was. Because now, they would, they, if they would go to the, to the, to the clergyman, if they go to the priests, here, take my child. Um, what was the, what, what did they think would happen? They would think that maybe, again, they didn't realize that the final solution, this was in 1942. They didn't realize that they probably were going to die and they wouldn't live, but they knew that there was, you know, there was this, they weren't, they weren't in a great, the odds weren't great, but maybe they'll be alive and maybe they'll be able to get their child back. Um, and there's a third option. The third option was many uh, Jews in the ghetto had relations with not priests, but with non-Jews. Some decent non-Jew um, that would hide the child, and then, with trust, bring the child, give the child back. So, Rav Oshari, who was at this point, now, I, I need to say that Rav Oshari has done an incredible thing. Uh, he passed away, of course, but he did an incredible thing for 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 us by by writing these five volumes of response from the Holocaust. Now, but I have to tell you, despite the respect that, that, that even when, as a young man, people had for him, he was not the post-Sekador. He was not the, the, he was a young fellow in his twenties. He was born in 1914. So he was 28 years old when I guess he was involved in this question. Uh, again, I don't know enough about his biography, uh, about his life to wonder whether he would have been the rabbi that would have been, um, asked to deal with this question. My guts tell me that he probably was aware of these questions and there were other rabbis that had to uh, decide. And it's possible that in a place like the Kovna Ghetto, where maybe some of the older rabbis had already died, this young man was pushed into the type of prominence that he needed to deal with this question, but he was only, he was barely, he wasn't even 30 years old 
and he was asked this question about what sh- what he should do, um, because the people came and asked him. Says, you know, it, there's a great chance we're not going to live. Is this what we should do or not? Um, and he wrote this chuva. Now I have to tell you that this version that came out in um, in the late 1960s. Um, or maybe this was even something that he published in, in the 70s, was a redoing of a tshuva that he wrote when he first published this in 1949. Uh, Ephraim Ushri was in the Kovna Ghetto, and I think he, uh, I, I believe he was in the concentration camps, but I'm not exactly sure which camp he was in. I can look that up. But he survived and lived almost to be 90 years old. And um, in 1949, when he was, a you know, a relatively young man in his 30s, he published the first collection of this question, these chuvas, and this was in there. Um, he called it Me'emek Abocha, from the Valley of Tears. And it definitely was a valley of, of intense tears and tragedy. And um, he mentions here uh, a little bit something which is not... Um, um, he also talks about the idea that um, uh, about people who were um, having, you know, uh, putting the, the word Reish Kuf, you know, RC on their on their passports. I mean, they were Roman Catholics. That's another question about disguising yourself as a non-Jew in order to live. But this was the, really the questions you can see um, that 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 was he was involved in. And you can see he wrote it up in 1949. It's pretty short. And then he rewrote it in the late 60s and 70s. And that's the that's the one that I um, I will show you. So this was a question that was that that I don't know if he was the authority is my point, but at least he did the research. So let's take a look. The Rambam says, "Kol beis Yisrael mitzuvan al kiddush Hashem now that's an interesting language for the Ramam to use. Kol Beis Yisrael. He could have just said Anu Mitzuvim, right? The Ramam says everybody has a mitzvah Kiddush Hashem. Why does the Ramam have to say Kol Beis Yisrael? So, um, the uh, Rabbi Chis- Rabbi Chaim Chizkio de Silva, one of the great uh, early 17th centuries. Um, uh, Rov in uh, Yerushalayim uh, who wrote a beer on the Rambam and Shulchan Aruch too he's one of the really great minds um, writes that Kol Beis Yisrael means a non-Jew doesn't have a mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem remember Kiddush Hashem means you die for the sake of God um, as the Rambam says but women and children do Anyone who's part of the greater house of Israel is Mitzvah Kiddush Hashem. Um, now, what does that mean, Kiddush Hashem? What does it mean a child has a Mitzvah Kiddush Hashem? Yeshayamod Goy, or Oivikachavim, and the non Jew says, You must violate the law. You, right? And if not, I'll kill you. And he's doing it in order to, because, not for his own benefit, but because 
um, he wants to make a point that the religion is not binding and that we're going to violate this religion. We're going to stamp this religion out. We're going to stamp your identity out. Well, especially if it's what we're talking about is, you know, the three cardinal sins. But even even if it's not the three cardinal sins, if it's about stamping out and and and, and declaring that that this that even the small these mitzvahs are not relevant, you need to give up your life. Now, um, the Rambam says that's only, of course, if it's done in the presence of 10 people, people know about it. The three cardinal sins, you give up your life, even if that's not the case, even if there aren't 10 people around. So according to Reb Chaim Chizkiyo de Silva, the Rambam means to say even children would have to give up their lives. Um, one of the Achronim quotes the, and he quotes here the, from the Medrash Necha of the woman and her seven children. And they all gave gave up their lives. In fact, it says there that uh, one of the children, before he gave up his life, his mother had was nursing him. So from there, you see that it was a child that was nursing that gave up their lives. Of course, the um, the Gemara in Gitan speaks about a whole boatload of children who knew that they were being taken to Rome in order to be used as as, as sex slaves. And the Gemara speaks about the fact that they threw themselves into the ocean in order to die. And I haven't mentioned it, of course, but, right, that's the Gemara that says, There were 400 children that had been captured. And they were old enough to know that they were going to become sex slaves. So they asked the question, if we jump in and kill ourselves, will we go to Olam Haba? So the oldest one said, the Pasuk says, God will bring us back. God, you, you, God says you, your, your soul isn't forfeit. So when the girls heard that, Drosha, all the girls jumped in and drowned themselves. And the boys said, hmm, now this is going to sound very sexist, but I'm going to read it anyway. Girls, you know, being used as sex toys, it's ugly, but at least it's natural. And they understood that that shouldn't happen, and they were going to go kill themselves. Anu, but they want us for what's considered abhorrent sex, what's considered abnormal sex. For sure we should kill ourselves, and the boys jumped in as well. So you see here that that not only you know, uh, based on this interpretation of the Rambam and these Midrashim, that we have precedent for what was happening in Germany and in France and in England of children dying rather than being uh, involved in these Averos 
and and uh, being forced to commit these averos and and maybe eventually accepting on themselves to do these averos they would rather kill themselves and of course many of you are probably thinking although i haven't mentioned it yet many of you are thinking maybe about um masada where again i believe there were children there as well and i there again the even before this was way before europe that you know we look at the masada as, as as heroes. Right. Now, what were the Romans going to do? Were the, were the Romans, now there you could say the Romans would have killed everyone anyway. But would they have killed the children? Right? Would they have killed the children as well? So I don't know. Maybe you've heard different, you know, again, Masada has become part of, uh, it's, it's part of our history, but it's also, you know, a very modern uh, theme. I know that, uh, Mark, I know that you and my son, I know that your son, if your children did it, I know my son did it, right? That was part of their, their training as a, as, 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 a, as a soldier in Israel, was to, um, was to go and climb Masada, right? That's part of the, uh, that's, that, that's part of how you earn your stripes. And the idea of Masada seems to have, among with it, not just we fight till the end, but, it, but we will not be taken, we'll not be prisoners. But for the children... Was it about Jewish freedom, or was it more a sense that maybe by 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 doing this they would not live like Romans? Okay, now how does this work though intellectually? A child is a child. How does a child have a mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem to say that right? Mitzvahs are for adults. So here, Rav Oshri gives us, I think, a very uh, good way to understand it. He says the following, and this is using um, uh, a language that was actually um, uh, um, developed by the Sefer of Otis Amelech, which is um, of Moshe Pomeransky, I believe, who was um, the uncle of Rav Salvechik, and he says the following. You can't really say that they have the command because they have no commands. But they're in the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. Now, what does that mean? There's something called the hefts of the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, even though they're not mechuyev in it. But they are part of that mitzvah. That is, is almost like an all-encompassing mitzvah for our community. Even though as individuals, you can't necessarily say you have the mitzvah. But when these events occur, they're about, they, they actually relate on a, in, in a macro way to what we are as a people. And therefore, even though the child as an individual doesn't have the mitzvah, but when it comes to Kiddush Hashem, a child is part of that. Now, there's a way that a child is part of that in a way that's very benign, which is, and, 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 and Rav Oshri quotes it from the great uh, Ashkenazi Balatosis, uh, Rabbeinu Tam, who says you could have a, a minion even with, if one of them is a child. Because a child, even a, a baby, 
who's there, and again, it might only be number 10 to the minion, but it still counts. So, and, and, and this, that according to that opinion, you might be able to read the Torah and have a minion because we do have the 10 people here. Because what is the idea? It's not just everybody, you know, everybody should daven and, and fulfill their mitzvah, but the Shechina is here in some way. Kol be'asara shechin tasharia, Rabbi Tam quotes the language. Wherever there's ten, even though one is a child, that represents shechina. And this halacha, by the way, is, is, is also applied to where a guy is sleeping in shul. And he's not even awake, but he's part of it. It's also applied if someone's in the middle of davening something else, or in the middle of Shmon Esrei, you might be able to, according to this opinion, you might be able to start your repetition of the Shmon Esrei, even though that person's sort of in another world, but he's here. Because the, the point is, you don't necessarily have to be concentrating, you don't have to necessarily be proactive, but you're part of things. And again, taking that to Rabbeinu Tam's, I wouldn't call it absurd conclusion, but a very strong you know, extension, it would include all children. They're all part of the minion, and, and we don't pass them that way necessarily. But you see the idea of the theory behind it, which is that there is the Shechina, there's the Tzibor. They're part of it. And what happens because of that, as Rav Oshri says, the Kotan is part of the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, but he doesn't have the Chiv of the mitzvah. Now, other mitzvahs, children aren't even part of it all. There's a separate rabbinical thing that the child, uh, that the parent has to train the child for the mitzvah. The Kiddush Hashem might be different. So now, um, we know that um, if a child is not really part of this mitzvah, of Kiddush Hashem, according to the Rambam, you have no right to to be a tzaddik. The Rambam says clearly that if you don't have to give up your life, you stay alive. And if you give up your life unnecessarily, the Rambam says, you you have you are not considered a martyr. You're considered a, a person who committed suicide. You're a person who threw away the gift of life. So, from the fact that we have stories of children that gave up their lives in Kiddush Hashem, it would seem that they this is something that they are part of that mitzvah. And as part of that mitzvah, not only can they, right, they, 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 you know, they might, you know, maybe those children acted exactly the way they should. Now, um, let's talk... Uh, real about the possibilities of what would happen. So Rav Oshri says, as he develops this, and he, it's a very interesting tshuva that gets into, you know, Brismila, which has another connection to our Parsha, about whether, you know, there's a there's a there's an opinion in, in, in Chazal that say that when Moshe was attacked, that it wasn't Moshe that the this, 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 whatever it was, this illness or, or demon or monster that was attacking them on the way was actually trying to, to kill Moshe's child because Moshe's child had, didn't have, uh, didn't have, wasn't circumcised. 
Now, was that trying to, was that a punishment to Moshe? So he gets into that, um, which is sort of a, a side issue, but an interesting one to connect to our Parsha as well. Um, Rav Ashri says like this, to give to the, um, to giving to the, uh, to the priests would be awesome. Um, even if you want to say that the child as an individual doesn't have a mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, you have no right to give your child to them. And the reason is, is because he might not have a mitzvah on himself as an individual, but as the community, you can't do an act that means openly, I'm giving you this child. Um, now, that might be different than doing nothing. And again, it sounds like a pedantic difference. Hmm, I didn't hand the child to the priest, but I died and the priest came and took the child. Technically, you know, I know it sounds like I say, but there, that, there is a difference there. There is a difference between, and, and Rav Oshri quotes from a very, some very early sources out of Italy where similar stories were about, you know, finding and taking people, taking children and taking young girls. And the language there was, the postcom said, we can't give those children over. If they come and find them, that's something else. Because there, there was a, a worry that if, that, that they were, there were, the whole community was going to be attacked. Uh, the whole community was going to be uh, in the threat of danger and killed if this girl or whoever it was, would not be uh, handed over according to the deal that supposedly the Christian she had made or that the Christian fellow had with her. So the psak that came out of Italy in the um, in the 18th, early 18th century was, they can go ahead and find her, but you shouldn't give her. Based on that, Ravoshari says that that would be the same thing, that would be the same thing in the Covenant Ghetto to actually give it to the priests um, would be awesome. Um, now, what about giving them to um, friends and then coming and getting them? if you're going to be alive. So he says, there, the question would be, yes, there definitely is a chance that you're not going to live. And maybe a very strong, more than a chance. Maybe it's more than 50-50. Maybe it's 80-20 that you're not going to live. But the guy tells you he'll give back your child. So maybe the uh, you have a suffix, maybe you know, and should that be docha suffix nefashos? So here, as Ashri says, here we say, look, if you don't give this child away, you already know what the Nazis are going to do. It's definitely, and if you give the child to be hidden, he'll live. 
and maybe you'll live too. You need to believe that you could survive. And even if you won't live, Rav Oshri said, and I'm not sure if he said it to this young woman who, or a young man with the child, but he said, and by the way, he himself lost his wife and children in the Holocaust. He was a young man and he actually lost his own children. But he said, it's definitely possible they'll give him back. To who? They'll give him back to members of the Jewish agency after the war. And because there's all these possibilities, there's certain death and all these other doubts. So therefore, I would say that you can give the child to these friends. And um, I should point out that, um, that many people were involved in that work including, of course, Rev. Laser Silver um, uh, and Rev. Rev. Herzog and other great rabbinic leaders who actually spent their, you know, spent years after the war trying to trace these kids down. Um, and Rev. Oshri said, as, as, as Psak is clearly that way, that if they didn't go into the hands of those children, uh, into those places, then obviously... Um, they wouldn't live at all. And it would be the right thing. And in fact, not just the right thing, they would probably, it would, they, that would have been the mitzvah. Um, now, um, we know, of course, that uh, I believe there was the uh, English kinder transport. And again, I didn't do my research well enough on this, but I know that there were many uh, places where the children were taken uh, to England, and I, I don't know the um, the numbers on this, but I know there was a pretty decent percentage of children who stayed and were raised as non-Jews and decided to live as non-Jews. I know that that was definitely um, uh, the case. Um, on the other hand. Yeah, the Akadosh Baruch Hu is not going to punish those children, especially since there was no way that they could have, that they could have actually, uh, you know, God will not cause that child to suffer um, for those choices. The question is, on a macro level, how how much are we less because of the people that are have been lost to us in this way? So, you know, I. Um, I've tried to show you, I think, here a little bit of a path of how what Yocheved did, in a way, um, was sort of like prescient in terms of, of 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 all, you know, she represents all great motherhood. And is it possible, really, to, and here's, I guess I'm going to throw this in, you know, are we just going to say that, you know, that you know, that was before the Torah and this was really the wrong way? I think by 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 looking at what and, and going through these parshios, especially you know every year, and having Yochevet loom large for us, I think Yochevet's choice um, could be at least added to some of these halachic directives, and in that way, um, well, remember, she you know the, 
she did do what she could to sort of like ensure, you know, putting Miriam there. And of course, we know what the Hatzalah was. And I, I think, I guess Moshe's story is really uh, a symbol for us about the the importance of having the Bitalchon and saving lives and then doing what you can in order to ensure that that outcome, the best possible outcome can occur. And the same way it occurred then, perhaps, you know, this is the type of thing that it might not happen right away, but eventually those person will be able to be brought back. And who knows, maybe the person will discover um, in history, you know, years later, where they were from. And that will be what is the impetus to come back. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 